as bards. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this opportunity to gather together as family. Thank you for gathering said family together in the unity of the faith, Father. Thank you for giving us said faith by grace. For we know that you allot each of us a measure of it in time. Thank you for your patience with us, of course, and thank you for always revealing to us the truth that sets us free. We pray for those that are ill in the congregation, and we pray for those that are lost. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Again, why all the complexity in chaos? Uh, just a few uh, wonderful series, short series uh, behind us. And then this came out of our lessons, which is um, very interesting, I think, um, on the coattails of Are You Ready? That was our last. And before that, it was The Power of Deception. So we had Power of Deception, then Are You Ready? And now we have Why All the Complexity in Chaos? So this week, to me, has been a lot of fun. Um, when I think about what the Spirit's doing with this congregation, it appears to be pretty straightforward, even though for some of you it's turning over some pretty complicated stones, and that's sort of the paradox that um, it's really, as our website says, simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. But yet when we turn over certain stones, our life for a while gets more complicated thinking about certain aspects of life itself become more complicated and that just seems to be disjoint with what um, God has intended for us. And so we want to dig in our heels and see why that might be the case. So for some of you, um, turning over uh, certain stones is brought in complexity and even some chaos in your life. Here's what the Word has to say about such complications, or as I like to call them, complexities. Uh, first, up here on the board, living in deception, uh, the deeper the hole, the longer it may take to crawl out of it. And so one of the things, one of the key principles from this past week is that um, since Satan's a massive deceiver, a lot of times we don't even realize that we're being deceived. And because we've been in living in a deception for so long, we don't realize that that's what we're living in. And that's a problem. Uh, and I was thinking about that. Living in such a deception, why does it take some people so long to be delivered? And a good analogy really is, well, if you dig a really deep hole, it takes you that long to get out. If you, if you dig a shallower hole, it takes you that long to get out, right? And if you dig a really, really deep hole, it takes you a long time to get out. And so I guess, in all fairness, some of us are dragging around or have dug a deeper hole than others. The deeper the hole, the longer it may take to crawl out of it. With God, all things are possible, but there's no guarantee that deliverance will be instantaneous. I think that's one of the failures of individuals. I shouldn't say uh, failed expectations of individuals that come to church for a week and say, we'll see, nothing happens, so I'm out of here. I was just having a conversation with somebody I have to go through the congregation again and say, all right, who's really a member here? Because people rush and like, oh, I've got to be a member. And then they don't show up. Once that make them a member, then all of a sudden they're not around anymore. It makes no sense. I mean, it makes sense, but it makes no sense, if that makes sense. I mean, do you really want to be a member or not? You know what I'm saying? I know I'm talking in circles, but I'm being facetious when I say it. With God, all things are possible, but there are no guarantees that deliverance will be instantaneous. In fact, God may want the process to take time, and that's what um, the lessons on the power of deception and are you ready were all about. God may say, I want this to take some time because there's certain steps, baby steps we have to take along the way to actually be delivered. Otherwise, it'll be a false deliverance. Um, we've been hearing this theme over the past week or so, this concept of personal readiness. The other element of our studies is regarding the point I made earlier, 
why the complexity, uh, and it's, you know, it's close cousin chaos, why the complexity? From God's viewpoint, life is quite simple and straightforward because he is immutable. God doesn't have complexities other than what we might perceive as complex, but to him it's pretty straightforward. Malachi 3.6, Hebrews 6.13, James 1.17. Life is complex, quote-unquote, from man's perspective because he has a flesh that is antagonistic to God and therefore really good at creating chaos. That's the flesh. Proverbs 11.14, John 14.27, 1 Corinthians 14.33 and 40. So let's look at the first set of scriptural references for a refresher course on the immutability of God. Go to Malachi 3.6, towards the end of your Old Testament. Malachi 3.6. So we're going to establish this principle from God's viewpoint. Life is quite simple and straightforward because He is immutable. So you have to imagine for a moment, if you were immutable, immutability means he never changes. His mind doesn't change. His essence doesn't change. Some of you change your mind in essence daily, depending on your mood. It's that time of the month. Sorry, ladies. Wow. Whoa. Maybe it is, huh, Scott? Huh? <laughs> now Tammy's faking it. <laughs> Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. I, the Lord, do not change. How about Hebrews 6.13? Hebrews 6.13. We're just having a quick refresher course to build up our souls on the immutability of God. Hebrews 6.13. God never changes. And He swears by it. He's really the only faithful one, when you think about it. Hebrews 6.13, For when God made the promise to Abraham, for example, since he could swear by no, other, no one greater, he swore by himself. <laughs> he said, on my own immutability, on my own veracity, my own truth, I'm going to swear by myself, my, these, this promise is on my merits. And since I'm immutable, hey, it's as good as it gets, right? Go to Hebrews 13.8. Hebrews 13.8, of course, Jesus Christ is God. And what does the Bible have to say about Jesus Christ and His immutability? Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He doesn't change. So you can imagine the simplicity of not ever... Think about that. Just think about for a moment the last big decision you've had to make and how many times you change your mind. And how you labored over it, you antagonized over it, and you were anxious over it, it caused you grief, it caused you joy. One moment you're up in the air, next time... God doesn't have any of that. None of it. And that's like one major decision in your life, which is filled with decision after decision after decision. So Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And how about James 1, 17? James 1, 17. Our last verse on our refresher course. <clears throat> James 1.17 verse 17 of the book of James. <laughs> every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That's been an interesting conversation too with individuals, you know, um, is there really any gray in life? To us, there is. To God, there isn't. There's no shadowy areas to God. To us, there's shadowy areas everywhere because we don't know everything. We're not uh, omniscient, right? So we don't know everything. And so it's, I think it's fair to accept that for us, there are gray areas. If you want to be really theological, there isn't, but I hope you know what I'm saying. But with God, there is no shadow, there's no shadowy, there's no gray to him, everything's obvious, and therefore his life, his existence, is very simple in that sense. So can we all agree from Holy Scripture that God is immutable? All right. All right, let's look at the second set of passages in order to knit this principle together and drive the point home. Again, the point on the board, why the complexity? 
From God's viewpoint, life is quite simple and straightforward because he is immutable. We just saw that. Life is complex from man's viewpoint because he has a flesh that is antagonistic to God and therefore really good at creating chaos. If God is perfectly stable, then if you're antagonistic to him, the only, thing, the only space left is the opposite of perfect stability, which is instability and chaos and complexity and blah, blah, blah. So go to Proverbs 11.14, Proverbs 11.14. So right out of the gate, the Spirit's putting a line in the sand. He's saying, on this side of the land is God, perfect stability, perfect peace, perfect love, perfect everything. On this side is chaos. Things get really complex, complicated, and chaotic. Proverbs 11.14, where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Go to Proverbs 25, 28. 25, 28. Where there is no guidance, people fall. And thank God we have guidance from above. Proverbs 25, 28. Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. How about John 14, 27? John 14, 27. So we know with the element of free will that we have choices and we can sort of choose to at least experientially abide in one or the other, on one side of that line or the other. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you because the world's going to give you things that make life chaotic. Right? You need to buy this. Oh, go down to funny, you know, the guy with the, I can't say it. You need to go buy a new car. You need to do that. You need to move. You need to do this. You need to get a new this. You need, oh, and you're like, oh, I can't take it. Right? You didn't make changes. Change, change, change. Like, and God's immutable. Wait a minute. Settle down there, Rocky. You know, like, settle down for a moment. Take a deep breath and realize the things that are real. Uh, and have eternal value in life. Uh, not as the world do I give to you. That's bad. And that's the distinction that Jesus was making. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. How about 1 Corinthians 14.33? 1 Corinthians 14.33. Again, the one who is antagonistic to God is the one who ends up confused, chaotic, dysfunctional, 1 Corinthians 14.33 For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. God's not a God of confusion. And of course, go to 1 Corinthians 14.40 where we get a little bit of a warning. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So again, the point on the board is from God's viewpoint, life is quite simple and straightforward because he is immutable. Life is complex, though, from man's viewpoint because he has a flesh that is antagonistic to God and therefore really good at creating chaos. And if we tie this principle together with the one we began this evening with, we are able to get a clearer picture of what the Spirit's saying or trying to teach us, that complexity and chaos are derivatives of sin. Complexity and chaos are derivatives of sin. We're going to look at that a little bit later. Again, up here on the board, our first principle this evening, the deeper the hole, the longer it may take to crawl out of it. I mean, who, who, who here can say that they didn't live in a certain sin even long after they knew it was wrong and kept living in it? And then kept on living in it. And then kept going back to it. Even after you knew it was dead wrong. Only DJ, obviously. <laughs> right? That's the deep hole. Because I always equate, you know, a single sin, okay. But a lifestyle is like a locomotive. 
it has a lot of momentum. If you've ever taken a physics class, when there's a lot of mass and it's moving in a certain direction, it's hard to stop. It takes a while. You ever seen a locomotive stop? It takes a long, they start like a mile away. I don't know what the number is, but they start a long way away. Why? Because there's so much momentum behind that thing. And your life is like a locomotive. And sometimes there are certain aspects of your life that you're living in sin. It just takes a long time to stop that thing. And that's part of my job is to put up my hand and I'm like at the front of the locomotive saying, stop it, stop it, stop it. Look up, look around, look, stop, put the brakes on. So the deeper the hole, the longer it may take to crawl out of it. With God, all things are possible. That is true. No, never, we can never say, oh my God, that locomotive's going so fast, there's no way to stop it. They're going to hell, they're going straight to hell even, this type of thing. With God, all things are possible. But there's no guarantee that deliverance will be instantaneous. In fact, God may want the process to take time. Now, let's consider that last statement a bit more. God may want the process to take time. First thought, we might do well to consider the fact that God often and purposefully takes his time regarding deliverance. You might say, that doesn't sound like God. God wills everybody to come to the knowledge of him and this, this that, and the other. And it's true. But he also wants to impart faith to you. He also wants you to go through what Jesus went through, namely suffering. He also wants you to grow. He wants to strength train you. He wants to do a lot of things that take time. And if he delivered you every time, where's the strength training? If every time you went into a gym, he said, okay, just punch this clock and leave. Don't ever worry about lifting a weight or working out or anything like that. Just punch this clock and leave. You're not going to get any strength. So he takes his time regarding deliverance. And I can only speculate why he, or why he does so in your life. But I'll share a reason that he's revealed to me and mine, if it helps. And maybe some of you can relate. I believe that if God decided to deliver me immediately from whatever self-inflicted pain I've endured, I'd never learn my lesson. I would never learn my lesson. Do you know how many alcoholics there would be if there wasn't a hangover? I'm serious. Just say it. How many alcoholics would there be if there wasn't such thing as a hangover? You guys, what, is that not funny? No, you can laugh because it's true. If there was no repercussion, just saying. I'm not saying I have that problem, by the way. You guys are like, she's like a closet alcoholic. I don't, I'm not. So don't be doing that. As everybody's like, oh my God, he's talking about himself. Or better yet, no, he's talking about me. Yeah, I'm talking about you, bozo. I believe that if God decided to deliver me immediately from whatever self-inflicted pain I've endured, I'd never learn my lesson. I know the right thing to do pretty much all the time nowadays. No, don't, I'm not being cocky, but you know what I'm saying. I've been around long enough. I have enough holy scripture in me, and I'm filled with the Spirit enough that I know what's wrong. And yet, I still sin. And there are always consequences for the following is true Galatians 6 7 do not be deceived God is not mocked this is another deception isn't it everyone in here thinks they're getting away with something even right now you know it's wrong you know it's dead wrong you're still doing it and you think you're getting away with it but God is never mocked and it doesn't mean that some part of your life is going to be affected. What I've learned is he'll affect some other part of my life. He'll say, okay, you want to get all hung up in this sin over here? I'm going to crush you over here. I'm going to rob something over here. You're not going to get to this point over here because you're too preoccupied in your sin right here. And you say, see, nothing's going on. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. I don't even have a hangover. And meanwhile, this part of your life is rotting away. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. 
So I don't know about you, but I say, I say, thank God for consequences. Thank God for consequences. Huh. Now, to really drive home the main principle on the table this evening, why the complexity and chaos, let's synthesize Galatians 6, 7, God is not mocked, whatever you, so you shall reap, with this one, Romans 7, 19 to 20. For the good I want, that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing a sin which dwells in me. Okay, so God is not mocked, and I'm a sinner. And I'm going to keep on sinning, it appears, for the rest of my life. This makes no sense. Why all the complexity and chaos? Why don't I just stop sinning? Why, what, if, if I know it's good, why don't I just stop? The Bible tells us that even though we know there are consequences to sinning, we're going to do it regularly. And like clockwork, when we sin, we lose the most precious things in our lives, like peace for starters. Like peace. Why? Because you have a conscience. You have a conscience, and the more of this you have circulating in your soul, the more of that thing is alive and well in you. And God the Holy Spirit is going to convict you all the more with that conscience. Remember what a conscience job is, fundamentally, to distinguish between right and wrong. God gave you that, and thank God for that. So, when we sin, we lose some of the most precious things in our lives, like peace for starters. Let's look at a generic principle regarding this issue, and we'll establish that sin produces grief, and grief is antagonistic to peace in the soul. Go to 2 Corinthians 7.10. 2 Corinthians 7.10. What about sin? Well, we know that God is not mocked. We know that we reap what we sow. Now, this is a generic principle. This one's more dealing, or fundamentally dealing with salvation principles, but you get the point. 2 Corinthians 7.10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, you could easily say leading to salvation slash deliverance if you're a believer. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, what's going on? Let me give you the Amplified up here. 2 Corinthians 7.10 and the Amplified up here in the board. For godly sorrow that is in accord with the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation or deliverance. But worldly sorrow, the hopeless sorrow of those who do not believe, produces death. Now, let me give you some guidance on this. Godly sorrow, this is the grief that enters a person's life when they sin. Now, I don't know about you, but that stuff can haunt you. And while everybody else may say, I totally forgive you, I'm this, I'm that, you have to somehow come to terms with your own sinning. doesn't mean you're going to be guilt-ridden, or downtrodden, or fearing eternal life or loss of salvation or any of that stuff. It means there's a certain godly sorrow that's going to enter your life because of sin itself. And God is going to use that to His glory. And that's why I say thank God for consequences even. One of the consequences is you're haunted by your own good conscience. Especially when you're living in sin. Especially when you're living in sin. This is the grief that enters a person's life when they sin. It occurs when this person realizes their opposition, opposition to God, and so they repent. This is distinctly different from the type of sorrow that comes from the world up here on the board. This is remorse, worldly sorrow. This is remorse that does not lead to true repentance. Remember our lesson on attrition versus contrition. God revives the heart of the contrite, Isaiah 57, 15. This produces bitterness and despair, elements of the sphere of death, which is Satan's world system. 
Satan being the god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. So this worldly sorrow is very different. It's a bit of bitterness. It's remorse. It's despair. And these are all elements of the sphere of death. Again, what's the verse? Look at verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Okay, we need to step back now and take a breather. So the main theme of this message is why the complexity and chaos. Why the complexity and chaos. This on the coattails of our previous lessons titled The Power of Deception and Are You Ready? The Power of Deception and Are You Ready? Why all the complexity? Why all the chaos? Let us not underestimate the value of God's timing with all of these lessons. We are on a curriculum that was set in heaven from eternity past. And since our God is not a God of confusion, but rather of peace, may we always understand that whatever He's doing, particularly to those who love Him, He's doing to deliver them from the power of sin to the power of life in Christ, a.k.a. to sanctify them. That's what this is all about. Up here on the board, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And if you have a godly sorrow, it leads you to repentance. And then after repentance, He can deliver you. If you have a worldly sorrow, you suffer. You lose out, for God is not mocked. And yet so often we choose knowing better. Knowing the end from the beginning. Do you not know that verse, Galatians 6, 7 yet? Do not, be, do not mock God. God is not mocked. But whatever you sow, you will reap. Then why in the world do you still sin? If you know the end from the beginning, what are you doing? Isn't that the craziest thing? I can ask myself the same thing. It's crazy. It's confusing in of itself, isn't it? Just the question itself causes confusion and complexity. You're like, wouldn't life just be simpler if we obeyed God? So the question on the table is why the complexity and chaos? And so far from what we've gleaned from Holy Scripture is the following. There are some fundamental truths already on the table from Holy Scripture up here on the board. One, God is immutable. He never changes. Man's flesh is antagonistic to God. Man's sin creates chaos in his own life. God's desire is sanctification and peace. Sanctification takes time. These are fundamental truths on the table. God is immutable. Man's flesh is antagonistic to God. Man's sin creates chaos in his own life. God's desire is sanctification and peace. Sanctification takes time. Now that we have all the so-called data on the table, at least for tonight's discussion, we have all the data on the table from the Word of God, what do we see? And in particular, how does what we see pertain to why the complexity and chaos? The big question. Why the complexity and chaos? At this point, I'm hoping it's pretty obvious. But if not, let me see if I can help you. Up here on the board. Why the complexity? God is the source of peace, not confusion. This we know. Complexity is the result of man's sin producing worldly fruit, including worldly sorrow. A lot of people will even come to a class like this and not be contrite. They will hear a convicting message and they're not ready for it yet because they're still way too arrogant. Or there's a few things that God has to work out first before that act of contrition, a godly sorrow, takes over. And that's why you see people in here, and we can't judge because we've all been there, that are literally living in sin, in overt, blatant sin. And then you know, you've got to understand, it's like cockroaches. If there's overt, there's a, there's a thousand covert sins, right? And they won't budge. And you say to them, what is the deal? Aren't you just sowing, like, 
bad things in your own life? Because God is a source of peace, not confusion. Complexity is the result of man's sin producing worldly fruit, including worldly sorrow. The person, that person I'm describing just goes, oh yeah, it's, it's real bad. Like I, I did this thing and now I have a venereal disease. Well, that's your only problem with it? Is now you got to go get a shot from the doctor and you don't like shots? That's the problem? That's the kid who gets stuck with his hand in the cookie jar. Oh, I'm sorry, don't punish me. That's the problem? Not that you're disobeying? Not that you're wounding yourself? You're being dishonest? You've taken the road of lying now? That doesn't bother you? Not really. It's really the punishment. That's worldly sorrow. As sin compounds, complexity increases. However, thank God, godly sorrow leads to repentance that saves and delivers towards simplicity. I've known people that they live literally a web of lies. They're actresses and actors that literally live a web of lies. And a web of sin, even. And they're so entangled in it that they can't seem to extract themselves. Or they won't let God extract them because maybe it's painful. Maybe they're having a hard time looking in the mirror, coming to grips with mistakes they've made, sins they've committed, sins they keep on committing. I don't know. God's just trying to get them to a point where He can save them where He can deliver them, where He can get to them to a place of simplicity, away from complexity and dysfunction. That's what sanctification is all about. In other words, simplicity, consider simplicity in a way. Simplicity, the way God is simple, is a destination that we are heading towards the more mature we get in the faith, the simpler life gets. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And that's why for some of you, there are actual practical ramifications that you've seen in your own life, even as late as this last year. I stopped doing this. I can't do that. I've just thrown that out the window because I just want to live a simpler life. And because I'm living a simpler life, I live a more content and peaceful life. Consider all the distractions that we are faced with in the United States nowadays. They're all from the world. And they're there to sow complexity. To keep you confused and distracted by the details of life. Have you ever gotten in a fight over um, what appliance to get? That's all candy. That's a problem. Have you ever have you ever gotten um, in a fight over an appliance or the color of a car or I don't know dinner where to go for dinner what is wrong with you <laughs> both of you are gonna eat right or all of you however many people are in the ridiculous party dysfunctional bus of fools right. What's wrong with you? You're all going to eat, right? What are you fighting about? Why is is there any consternation or complexity in a situation as far as food is concerned? Simplicity is a destination that we are heading towards where ultimately we are in heaven with the Lord enjoying the simplest peace imaginable. That is why we call the third phase of sanctification, ultimate sanctification. It's because our final destination has become our possession. God's ultimate plan for His children complete. This is why we must always refer back to the big picture in our studies and even our daily walks. It's because from God's perspective, this all makes perfect sense. Things are simple. From God's perspective, 
And as we continue to read our Bibles, it makes more sense to us. And this is one of the great blessings of knowing Him. And as we've studied in detail in the past, knowing is sanctification. Wisdom is sanctification. Sanctification is God's will. Knowing God and having more and more faith in Him is a primary element excuse me, of our sanctification. Not only does He sanctify us, but our knowledge of said activity adds to sanctification itself. Just knowing that God is sanctifying us, knowing that God is not a liar, knowing that He's not a God of confusion. He's not going to say, I'm going to sanctify you, but maybe not. <laughs> but maybe I will, maybe I won't. He's not a God of confusion. Knowing all those things, is that not a blessing? Having faith that God is a man of His word, or a God of His word, let's put it that way. Doesn't that give you comfort and a certain level of peace? That, in of itself, is a primary element of sanctification. It's part of the fuel, if you would, that sanctifies us all the more. Just knowing these things. Even when we can't see the fruit, we're like, man, is he going to sanctify me or what? Just knowing and having faith that he will is sanctification. Because the day before you didn't have that. All right, so regarding the question on the table, why the complexity and chaos? You see how we keep coming back to this? We've got our primary answer. It's man's sinfulness. However, as is often the case, the Spirit wants us to keep on digging and keep on seeking truth. For it is fair to say by now that we've never ended a principle with merely a proclamation of truth about it. Is that fair? Not from this pulpit. Everybody's like, yay! I can put that little doctrine right in my notebook. <laughs> okay, next, next please. No, not next please. I've always sit on this one for a while. Let's get a little uncomfortable. <laughs> we are always asked to ponder our own lives as a result and seek to understand how these principles apply to our individual lives. So let me give you a perfect analogy, if you would, of what I'm talking about here. Suppose you're a soldier and your commanding officer, your CO, says, take that hill. But because of the previous battle activity and the carnage and the smoke, you can hardly see the hill itself which is the destination. So you've got your marching orders, but you can't see the destination. And to add to that, there are mortar rounds exploding all around you. So you're shaking in your boots, finding it increasingly difficult to focus on the objective at hand. As some people say about life itself, you're just trying to survive. Under such circumstances, you might respond to your CO with, I have no idea how to take that hill because I can hardly see the destination. And over all the chaos, your CO says, use your compass, set your, set your direction to true north, and just go. Over all the chaos, your CO says, use your compass, set your direction to true north, and just go. And when you get closer to the hill, your objective will become clearer. Don't worry so much about the strategy, soldier. Let me worry about those details. You're not ready. You're not ready to see all of it yet, as you might even become overwhelmed. Imagine, <laughs> imagine giving an 18-year-old army recruit the knowledge that a four-star general has. Okay, I want you to remember all this stuff. I want you to make all this sense of all this. No. This is precisely how the Lord speaks to us through the Bible. And as is the case with any recruit, the newer you are to battle, the more chaotic the battlefield will seem. Again, the newer you are to battle, the more chaotic the battlefield will will seem, and at times, the only thing that'll make sense is your trusty compass. 
You just know the direction. You just say, Jesus is that way. That's all I know. I don't even know about tomorrow, like James says. I'm not even going to plan. I'm just going to go. So the only thing that makes sense is your trusty compass. And in the spiritual life, we call that your good conscience. Your good conscience. Remember our lessons of old when the Spirit taught us about how He uses the Word to convict your conscience of right and wrong. And in that way, we find our direction. And even though we aren't in full possession of the hill yet, we know which way to go. Jesus spoke of this very simply. John 14, 6 on the board, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the way. I don't know everything that Jesus knows. He's immutable. To him, everything's really simple. To me, mm -mm, I'm still growing up. You're still growing up. But I know I want to follow him. I know as a sheep, I hear his voice. I want to follow him. He's the sweetest voice of all. That's, I just want to go in that direction. If all I can see is, is, the, is the, the, the heels of his, of his boots as he's marching on and he's got perfect clarity and I don't know what the heck's going on, I'm good with that. I'm good. So reflect on that analogy. While this battlefield called life is like a boiling cauldron of chaos and confusion, what we must understand is that it was never like that in the Garden of Eden before the fall. There was no confusion or chaos in the garden. Do you understand? Something happened. And then all hell broke loose, right? And then Cain kills Abel. And stuff like that. But before the fall, there was no chaos. It was simple. They didn't even have to get dressed. Unbelievable, right? It wasn't until the serpent deceived, till deception was sown. It wasn't until the serpent deceived Adam and Eve that chaos entered the scene. And it wasn't until that time that mankind became confused for the very first time in his life. There was no confusion before that. So that is the very fruit of sin, confusion, a loss of perfect peace. That's what, confusion and peace are antagonistic. You realize that. I hope. When there's no confusion, you're at perfect peace. Think about decision making. No confusion. I'm at total peace with this decision. Well, life is basically a bunch of decisions, one after the other, right? So if you want pervasive peace in your life, then you want conviction. You don't want any confusion. You want things to be very clear. And the more you introduce sinful living into your life, the more confusion settles in. And the longer you go on that train, the faster it gets. And the more passengers it takes on, right? The more passengers, and then it's really heavy because they're all American. And, and there's this huge locomotive going, Right? And it's really hard to get off. It's really hard to stop the train. But that's, you've you got to understand that complexity, confusion, chaos, loss of peace, they're all a function of what happened as a result of the fall. God is in the process of restoring that peace through our sanctification. But until we are ultimately sanctified, we are caught between power systems experientially at least, as opposed to positionally. And because we are so deceived at times, even by our own sinfulness, not just our other enemies, we are at a loss regarding peace. So, when we ask that fundamental question, why the complexity and chaos? You know what? We have to go all the way back to the garden, like we so often do. Because it's that simple. We have to go all the way back to the garden. You don't understand why you're, you're so dysfunctional? Go back to the garden. 
Because before the fall, perfect peace was there, and sin destroyed it. Now, because this, quote, going back requires specialized knowledge, it takes time for us to learn. I mean, how many times have you read the book of Genesis? How many times have you read the account, just the first three chapters? How about the original account, the fall? How many times have you read that? And every time you go back, you learn something new. There's like a new perspective. It's like, oh my, what? I've read this a hundred times. How am I just seeing this now? It's because it takes time. You have to go out there, live life a little bit, be banged around a little bit, come back bruised. Say, oh yeah, that's right. So that's what we call specialized knowledge, and it takes time. It also takes time for us to gain wisdom as a function of faith. And as we've learned over the years, faith itself takes time because it often has to prove itself through testing. 1 Peter 1.7 So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. So faith has a, has a, a proving ground, if you would. It's called life. Faith has to be tested for it to be real. This we've learned. Our faith must be tested for it to become real to us. And the only way faith can be tested is in this crucible called life. So goes the analogy to the battlefield recruit. Before we were saved, let's, put, let's give this a little bit more perspective. Before we were saved, we were far off. And after we are brought near positionally, but experientially, we are still a distance away. Go to Ephesians 2, 13. Ephesians 2, verse 13. Turns out, that was not candy. That was part of my scalp. Because I burned my head. Because I'm bald, in case you haven't noticed. I burned my head the other day, and I'm scratching it, and I'm just I'm saying, no, no, that's not candy. Maybe a mite considers it candy. These are the things I'm thinking about while you're turning your pages. So turn faster and you don't have to listen. You won't get so much TMI. Ephesians 2.13. <laughs> Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Doesn't that harken right back to Genesis? Of course it does. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. You see the end goal? It's always peace. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And again, that enmity that is being spoken of is ancient. It's ancient. And I'm hoping you're seeing the connection at this point to the very source of chaos at the fall where sin was introduced originally. And so the practical answer to our question, why the complexity and chaos? Well, in part, we go back to Genesis 3.15 up here on the board and we see such enmity. Excuse me, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Our enemies are even involved in this. I often think about why people aren't sanctified quicker. You ever think about that? Why are, why are people not sanctified quicker? And that besides the, this crucible of life and the testing of our faith, there is the issue of arrogance. So we know from the Bible that life happens and God sanctifies us, but that takes time. And even a really fast learner, re even a really humble person isn't sanctified overnight. But what if you introduce a whole truckload of arrogance? What if the person now is not only just a regular person, but also there's this heaping load of arrogance? 
So the answer is that the vestiges of sin include a propensity for rejecting truth. And the more arrogant you are, the more likely you are to reject truth. And it really points to the fact that a person just isn't ready yet to receive the whole truth, even when they hear it. But there's not a one-to-one -one relationship, in other words. Sometimes it's an it's a issue of, of, of maturation, how mature a person is. Sometimes it's just a blatant issue of arrogance. But if you take that as a composite viewpoint of that person, and they just haven't got there, then you can say, holistically, they're just not ready. For whatever reason, and it's not really my business or yours, but for whatever reason, when someone hears the truth and they reject it, they're just not ready for it. Whether that means they're too arrogant or too young or still need to go through this or that faith hasn't been tested this way, that, I don't know. I'm not here to judge you. But what I can say is that you're not ready because if you were ready, God would give it to you. That's the difference. That's what the Bible tells us. It tells us clearly that some people hear the truth and accept it and are given faith, some measure of it, and are sanctified, delivered, and move on. Some people hear the same truth in the same class just like this, and they reject it. host of reasons but the fundamental reason is sin that I know the fundamental reason for at least for the arrogant side of it is sin they aren't as the Bible would say perfected yet and so we got to this point um, even in our previous study that sort of dovetails together with tonight's lesson being ready some people will reject truth the first time they hear it because they aren't ready for it yet. To be accurate, God isn't willing to give them understanding yet. Luke 9, 43, 45, 24, 44 to 53. That's right, Monica. It's not spelled right. Understanding. The pen comes out. You know. I'll be getting an email. Greg, we're going to get an email. Fix the website. Individual readiness is a function of God's timing. I can't tell you why. Other than you might be blatantly arrogant, you might be too young in the faith. You might be a lot of things. But for whatever reason, God decides when you're ready to receive something. We saw uh, an instance in Luke 9 and 24, 945, but they did not understand the statement and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And then later on, 2445, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures because the timing was right. Because the timing was right. So before we close, ask yourselves, at any point in the lives, now consider Luke 9 and Luke 24 there, at any point in the lives of the apostles, do you think God was confused? Or do you think he somehow felt his own plan for them was confusing? Or was God ever lacking perfect peace within himself? Hmm. The answers, of course, are no, no, no. Emphatically. Why? Because God is never confused, never doubting his plans, and never lacking peace. Why? Because God has never sinned. Sin is the culprit. So the answer to our question, why the complexity and the chaos? It's simple. Sin. Sin. That's why, what do we have? How many lessons was it on repentance? 70? What was it? Who gets to define? I don't know. It was huge. Why do you think? So that you would understand the value of repentance. Because if you don't repent, if there's not a godly sorrow, you don't, it doesn't lead to repentance. It's some make-believe worldly sorrow that leads to more misery. 
You never get to the root cause. The root cause is sin. Why are you so damn dysfunctional? What is your problem? Well, that's between you and the Lord. Really? But the root cause is sin. That is the root cause. And until you accept that fundamental truth, you're on the train. And the train's going to keep picking up speed. And the world's going to keep filling the tank and going, yeah, hit some more diesel fuel, hit some more diesel fuel. Let me, let me pile some more coal in there so you can get, gain more mass, so you have way more momentum. So it's harder to stop when you're 60 years old. Until you get on this train of thought. Right? Until you get on this train of thought. Until you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden in the fall. Until you start viewing all of this with a very big picture viewpoint, you're going to miss it. And chances are you will just be uh, a worldly repenter. You'll have some worldly sorrow like when the pastor says, God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. And your eyes got big like a doe. <gasps> I don't want to get in trouble with God. Better stop that thing. It's all about the punishment. You missed it. You already missed it. You already missed the mark, which is the very definition of sin itself. You already missed the mark. So let me close with this. Let's elevate our thinking. And I was going to get to some few, few more points, but let me see how far I can get. Yeah, I think I'll get that. Sin, take this home with you tonight over the weekend. Sin is the most destructive force in the universe. It robs you of everything. Do you understand? You may think you're getting away with something. You are getting away with nothing. God is never mocked. And he doesn't play favorites ever. He doesn't like you more because you're pretty. Or you're smart or you're witty. He doesn't like you more. Matter of fact, he probably says that's vanity, like he says in the Bible. Charm is deceitful, right? Beauty is vain. He said, see, I gave you that so you'd fail, so you'd see how ridiculous you are but I thought it was because you loved me more. <laughs> Joke's on you. <laughs> Seriously, sin is the most destructive force in the universe. You're so deceived, and you're so arrogant, you don't even realize what I just said. This is why I have to go home over the weekend and think about it. You wonder why your life is dysfunctional. You wonder why you have points of... You wonder why you're in... You wonder why you're here this evening and the whole time you're bobbing for apples. Sin is in your life. Because God's Word and proper thinking does nothing more than invigorate you. This would be the happiest time of your day if, you, if your life wasn't filled with sin. If your head wasn't filled with sin... You'd be looking forward to this all day long, saying, I cannot wait. Like, no, you'd rather go to uh, the grist mill and say, I can't wait for the meal. Go get me some prime rib. Come here, you're like, this. Give me a Twinkie. Give me the, give me the cliff notes. You wonder why you're like that. I just gave you the reason. I just literally gave you the reason. And some of you, because you're so arrogant, will still reject it. That's the most amazing thing for any, anyone, I was going to say any shepherd, but anyone to realize that the truth hits people smack dab in the face. Right here. Right here. Target practice. Pew, pew. The Holy Spirit's like pew, pew, pew. And people are like, eh, no. Nope. I, I, think, I think as soon as I'm done here, old Baldy, I'm going to go out to my car. And I'm going to go back to Dysfunction Junction. And I'm going to do the backstroke in the mire. Because that's what a pig does.
goes wallows in the mire. This is what we do to ourselves. What the hell do we do with other people? None of this matches up, right? Does your life actually match up with uh, you giving more other people more esteem than yourself? Nope. Why not? I'm so confused. Uh, I'm just trying to get myself together. I, I can't live for it. Yeah. That's because of sin. Before the fall, that would have never existed. Before the fall, you wouldn't have to work so hard to get new clothes because you'd be naked. You follow what I'm getting at? You see how fundamental this stuff is? You see how deceived you are? It's incredible. And America is just a, oh, so rich in worldliness and so destitute otherwise. Sin is the most destructive force in the universe. Chew on that over the weekend. We'll sink back up on Sunday. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this tremendous opportunity to learn your word this evening, to just be reminded of the right things in life, what's a priority to you and the immutable one and the awfulness of sin in our lives. Just, we just pray for more guidance and more faith and more clarity, and we thank you always for your patience. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.